you would please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3. <coughs> I will be reading Luke, chapter 3, verses 23 through 38. Luke three twenty-three through 38. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janai, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Esli, the son of Nagai, the son of Math the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Jonan, the son of Reza, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosum, the son of El-Madam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Elizer, the son of Jorim, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Mena, the son of Mattatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, the son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, the son of Salah, the son of Nashon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Admin, the son of Arnai, the son of Hezron, the son of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah, the son of Nahor, the son of Sarug, the son of Ru, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Axad. The son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahaliel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And to you, O God, creator of all men, I beg of the work in the carrying of your Holy Spirit so that I may do justice to this text and that your truth may be heard and by your Spirit embraced all the more to the glory of Jesus. Amen. Who cares about a genealogy? We should, because it is part of redemptive history. And the motivation behind Luke and why he placed this genealogy in his narrative where he did is crucial. It is crucial ultimately, for understanding 
the core of Christianity. The core of the gospel of justification by faith alone. Which incorporates within that big term the imputation of Christ's righteousness. We'll get there in a few minutes. We've got to do some house cleaning first about what we just read. When you compare Matthew's genealogy, he's the only other one that has a genealogy of Jesus. When you compare Matthew's genealogy with Luke's, you'll notice that they're almost completely different from Joseph, Mary's husband, all the way to David. That's a thousand years. Matthew, he begins his genealogy, goes back as far as Abraham, and that's it, all the way to Joseph. Luke goes all the way back to Adam, back to God. Matthew arranges his genealogy into three groups of 14 generations. Luke has 77 names, and seemingly he arranges them in 11 groups of seven apiece. Between Abraham and Jesus, that's the place where Luke and Matthew overlap, Abraham up to Jesus. Matthew has 41 names. Luke has 57 names. Matthew traces his genealogy back through David's son, Nathan. I mean, Solomon. Luke traces his genealogy back through David's son, Nathan. Between Joseph, the husband of Mary, and David, the names are almost completely different, except for two. They overlap with two names during that thousand-year period. Matthew lists as Joseph's father, Jacob. Luke says his father is Heli, or Heli. Now, all these differences have produced mind-spinning solutions, which I'm not going to bore you with, because you will fall asleep. But they're good to read through and sit home and studiously. But I will give you a basic taste briefly. In other words, what, what's going on here? Are, are they wrong? Are they in error? There's no reason to believe that. Now, one main solution that people have offered is that Luke is giving the genealogy of Mary. Matthew's giving the genealogy of Joseph. And the argument is, in our text, where we see Jesus who was the son, and he puts in there, supposedly, of Joseph. The argument is, that was his way, even though he didn't mention Mary, 
That was his way of saying he's not giving now the lineage of Joseph, but giving the lineage of Mary. And so he says Joseph's dad was Heli, where Matthew says Joseph's dad. I mean, he says where Mary's dad was Heli, where Matthew says Joseph's dad was Jacob. Uh, I'm not sure that's really what's going on. A lot of scholars have good arguments why that's not what he's doing, but we don't know for sure. Because we just don't have enough information. So a lot of other scholars, based upon this assumption, no, they're both giving the lineage of Joseph, Mary's husband. And then, based on that, there are numerous ways and uh, solutions or possible solutions to why we see the differences that we actually see. For instance, Matthew is giving the legal lineage where Luke is giving the natural lineage. Uh, There's one. Another is, just reverse them. Now, what the heck does that mean? These differing kinds of solutions are based upon biblical and historical laws of adoption, which which were really important for the Jews that have to do with the rights of inheritance of the land. So, and they have to do with this Old Testament, very clear, called the the the, the leveret marriage lineage thing. There's a leveret law, meaning, okay, you got your land, you got your land, and, and you know, the tribes are broken up, and then inside the tribes they're broken up in families, and okay, I have this land, my brother's got that land, and so if your brother, he marries and he dies before he has children, well, who's that land go to? And the leveret law says, hey, your brother should be willing to take your wife to himself, and to bear a child through her, naturally it's your child. Legally, it's your brother's child, and he inherits his land. You see the difference? Okay, so there's all kinds of, and I mean numbers of them, of how this may have worked in what's going on. Just so, so for instance, Matthew says Joseph's dad is Jacob. Luke says, Heli. It might work something like this. Maybe, we don't know, but maybe they were brothers and they both marry. And Jacob, who's listed as the dad in Matthew, dies childless. His brother, Heli, bears a child through Jacob's wife, who is Joseph, so, legally, Jacob would be his dad. Naturally, the seed would be Heli's. And that kind of thing happening down through the generations. This is what scholars do. I'm just about done with it. So let me just close this part with a quote from one of the major commentators, Daryl Bach. Quote, What seems most likely, if one is to take the accounts as historical, is that Jacob and Heli had a close relationship, 
though whether they are brothers or half-brothers or through marriage of Heli's sister to Jacob, leveret marriage or adoption, all of that is less clear. It is also clear that other breaks in the listing occurred. What the options show is that it is premature to insist on error here, even though a definite solution does not emerge. Nevertheless, the genealogy's main point is obvious. Jesus had a claim to the throne through David, and he is related to all humanity through Adam. All right. No more technicalities. That's it. Here's the point of Luke. He moves backwards in his lineage all the way to Adam and to God. Now, Matthew only goes as far back as Abraham. And why? Matthew is particularly writing his narrative of the life of Jesus to Jews. To make sure the point is made that he is the seed of Abraham and he is the seed, the son of David, all the way up. This is Jesus. He has to have that and the Jews know that. And that's biblical. That's why he just stops at Abraham. Luke, as we have seen, if you've been here from the beginning, he is particularly writing to a Gentile world like Theophilus. And they're plagued with the question, okay, the Jews, along with the Gentiles, but the Jews, they had him slaughtered and killed, and he's the Savior of the world. And so the question is, how is it that this Jewish son of Abraham, son of David, how is this Jewish Messiah the Savior of all humans? This is Luke's push throughout his narrative. And so, he doesn't stop at Abraham. He moves it all the way back to Adam. Long before God created the Jews as a people through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. Long before that, there was one man in every tribe, every skin color, every language, every culture in the universe is related to Adam. And this is the point he's making. And Jesus is related to Adam. Indeed, He is related to Adam. And He's related like Adam to God as His unique Son, which Luke has already made clear in these first three chapters. Now, what Matthew does in moving from Abraham to the future to Joseph and Jesus, that is the normal way to do a genealogy. What Luke does is weird. It's abnormal to move from Joseph all the way back in time. And so one thing when you see that, it's not really done that way. You ask, why? And bells start to go off. Why did he do this? He's shouting something to us. Something is up here. 
And when you take that and you add the reality of the place in the Gospel of Luke where he puts the genealogy, it begins to make sense. What I mean is this. You got Mark and you got Matthew and Luke. All three of them have, like we saw last time, Jesus comes to the Jordan, He gets baptized, the Holy Spirit descends, the Father speaks audibly, this is my beloved Son. Get it? God's Son. And then the next thing that happens in all three narratives is Jesus goes off to the wilderness, to be tempted by the devil. The only distinct difference is this. Only Luke now. Before he shows the next thing that happened in Jesus' life, going to the desert to be tempted, Luke inserts here, way down the road, this genealogy, culminating in the son of Adam. The son of God. Picture the Garden of Eden. The first man, Adam. There he is. And he, through the wife, is tempted by the devil. And he sinned. He plunged humanity into sin in judgment. Picture down the road, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under a law. Under the law. And the narratives are all saying it. Here He goes. You you want a microcosm of His life? This is really what we're going to see the next time. In the wilderness temptation. Here's a microcosm. Because this was His whole life, but you can see it intensified in this story of this 40 days without eating and being tempted by the devil. So where Adam was in the garden, being tempted and sinned, we see the second Adam in the garden, so to speak, called the wilderness temptation, being tempted. And he triumphed. He triumphed those 40 days and he's going to continue to be tempted unto death, as Philippians says, and the point is, his entire life His entire human life triumphed and never succumbed to the temptation of Satan to sin. In other words, therefore, what I'm saying is that Luke, in his genealogy leading into the wilderness temptation, calls Adam the Son of God, in order to show the comparison between Adam and Jesus. Adam was uniquely created by God. And Jesus, as we have seen throughout Luke, and the one in you, Mary, will be called what He is, the Son. Of God. This one is uniquely human in that his very personhood is uncreated. 
He is God who is taking to Himself a human soul and a human body. He is indeed the second man. The second Adam being tempted and conquering. Don't miss this. This is the gospel. What I mean is this. If you remember back into week one in the introduction, got to know this. Luke is not a hollow vacuum just writing, what happened next? He's a believer. He understands the gospel. He understands particularly the gospel of Jesus Christ delivered by Jesus to the Apostle Paul. He has been a close friend and servant of Paul in his missionary journeys for years. He knows Paul's theology. Which means he knows the Holy Spirit's theology. The unpacking of the life of Christ and what was really happening and its meaning. Let me, what I mean is this. Let me give you a taste if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Luke understands what Christ is all about. For instance, starting with verse 45, 1 Corinthians 15. The first man, Adam, Paul writes, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Verse 47, the first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. Excuse me. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam. Christian, are you one? We shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Luke by going back to Adam, the Son of God, relating Jesus now, is the Son of God. What He is doing is saying that that man who was implanted in the womb of Mary is the second man. The second Adam. Which gets to the very heart and the core of Christianity. Of the good news of Jesus Christ. That this man was born without sin. He lived, being tempted, never succumbed. Perfect righteousness in humanity to the end. So that Jesus, if you want to get the whole Gospel, get the whole Gospel. He was not just the substitutionary sacrificial lamb where our sins were imputed to Him and God punished and poured out His wrath upon sinners who were being saved in Christ and poured it out on Christ. He did do that. And He is that. It's not the whole ball of wax. It is that His 
perfect humanity. Being tempted in all things like we are as a genuine human being, His life lived is imputed to everybody who is in Him. And so, to see that for the rest of our time, I want you to turn to Romans chapter 5. I'm going to start reading in Romans chapter 5 with verse 12 and read through verse 19. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet, death reigned from Adam to Moses, the lawgiver, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam's, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through the one man, which is true, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And therefore, as one trespass or sin in the Garden of Eden, led to the condemnation of every one of you in here. As one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. The main point of Paul in this paragraph of what he is saying is that Adam and Jesus are parallel. He is comparing Adam 
Just these two men. The first man, Adam, and the second man, Jesus. And he will contrast them. This is the point throughout the paragraph. He's saying, as the obedient life, perfect obedience, sinless obedience of that one true, genuine, full human being, Jesus Christ, that life is far superior to the damage done by Adam's sin. He's saying the righteousness, not merely some good deeds, perfect human righteousness of Christ for those who are being saved. It is imputed I'm going to get to that word in a minute it's imputed to all who are in Christ just as the sin and the guilt of the one man Adam was imputed to every one of us let me stop on that word for a minute it's a great word It's a normal everyday word. Well, it's not used a whole lot, but it's used. For instance, I might do something dumb, stupid, hurt someone's feelings, and they make a judgment. And they do something that I find to be unjust and wrong. They may say, I know why Joe did that. He did that in order to hurt me. They have just imputed to me motives. Okay, now, so so that's easy so far because you know that when I use the word that way, because that's how it's used, they imputed to me motives that I don't think I had. What I meant by imputed, you can see it very clearly. I didn't mean what they did was some kind of electrical power went and went inside me and changed my motives. No, by imputed we mean what is happening in the mind of that person doing the imputation. We meant in their mind, they are considering that my motives were wrong. They are reckoning to me, attributing to me motives, which I deem to be, I think you're wrong. But the point is, the imputation happens in the one who imputes. Is anybody with me yet? Okay. Thank you. Let's get Pentecostal here for a minute. That means you can say, oh, there you go. Okay. So when, in Paul, it's a good translation of his word in Romans. So now, recent translation may not use impute. They may use count or credited to. It means the same thing. You're, God imputes, and he never imputes wrongly. Okay. But here's the miraculous thing. God did not, on the cross, cause Jesus to become a sinner. He did not infuse. He did not come into Jesus, take sin as if it's this living, you know, ontological being, and put it in Jesus. Okay, now you're a sinner, and therefore punish sin. He didn't do that. God imputed sin. He reckoned the sin of all who will be saved. 
to be upon Him and then punished. And so, I go back again, the statement I just made about what Paul's doing. He's saying, the righteousness, the perfect life, the perfect righteous life of Christ is imputed to the believer. It doesn't mean here. We can talk about sanctification and whether the Holy Spirit works in us. We're not talking about that. We're talking about in God's mind, for everyone who is in Christ, God has reckoned, imputed, my son's life to you forever. Just as he took our sin and Jesus never sinned and punished it justly, he also took Jesus' righteousness which we've never committed and attributes it to us forever. This in Romans 5 is what Paul is driving in. So, so far, this is my fear always with us believers that is difficult of trying to even listen at times to something like this. Don't ever think this is peripheral. Well, this shouldn't be Sunday morning because this is like, you know, for those who really want to take a theology class. This is Bible. This is Paul writing to the church at Rome he hasn't met yet and he says, here's the gospel. Okay, it's not peripheral. It's not second tier, okay, whatever, you can get deeper into what happened, but it is at the core of the gospel and the Holy Spirit had Paul write it because he wants all who are the children of God through Christ to grow and understand the beauty of what happened to them in Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, that the life and the obedience of Jesus and His obedience unto death, He's saying that is the foundation of the biblical precious doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness, which is at the core of the act of God in saving people called justification. By faith alone. So, what I mean is this. Here in chapter 5 of Romans, starting with verse 12, up to this point in Romans, Paul's had this one main theological purpose. To unfold the gospel of justification by faith alone apart from anything a person does. In other words, he has argued, chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, first half of chapter 5, that believers in Jesus Christ, those who have miraculously come to faith and embraced Him, they have been once and for all Reckoned, declared by God, righteous. Not merely forgiven of your guilty sin, which happened, and that's why the cross, but positively as if you lived your whole life without sinning 
and in perfect obedience. That's what he has said in Romans up to this point. That that being saved, this is what happens. Declared righteous. And I'm going to tell you, sometimes we just, okay, we're fine. No cancer's in me yet. But I think if the grace of God lets us die slowly in hospice care, you really don't want to start learning this then. You want to really have your roots deep in the gospel of Christ's righteousness when you're about ready to go on the other side of this curtain of the flesh. He says this declaration of perfectly righteous. As righteous as my son. It's not based on anything you have done ever 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 even when the Holy Spirit produces that wonderful thing called fruits of the Spirit and fruits of loving other people your justification before God now and throughout eternity is not ever based on anything you do, or on anything the Holy Spirit produces in you to do. It is based on another's perfect life. Jesus Christ. That's what Paul has said up to our text here now in Romans. And so, this is what he's doing now. He's taking Adam and Christ as the comparison to drive home the point that he has already said. For instance, in chapter 5 of Romans, look at verse 14. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam who was a type of the one who was to come. That clause right there, that last clause, is the key to the whole paragraph in Romans that I just read. Paul says, Adam is a type. It means he's he's a pattern. He's a prefiguring of the Son of Mary, of Jesus Christ. And so the rest of the paragraph compares the type with Christ, for whom Adam was a type of. And Paul's point is to make crystal clear what happened in salvation in Jesus Christ. So, let's go back to the beginning of the paragraph again. In verse 12. Notice how he starts. Therefore, now, next term is key. Just as, okay, just as, he's going to go to just as Adam, and where he's leading is, so also Christ. Just 
As sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, meaning all persons, because all sinned. So, do you see that? Right there, he just said, sin entered the world through one man, Adam. And then, through sin, death. That's God's judgment right here on sin. And He said that sin and that judgment against sin did not stay contained toward the one man. He said it spread to all persons. Now, why? Because all sin. Now, what the heck does that mean? The answer to that question about what does Paul mean by because all sin in this paragraph, it's huge. For instance, does Paul mean when he says because all sin, does he mean something like, yeah, we get born and we come to whatever age that is and we know... (laughs) Right? Wrong? And then we sin. Like I did. 1962. Whenever. And because I sinned, then I did an act of sin. Therefore, death spread to me. And that's why I'm going to die. You see? Is that what Paul means? Or does he mean that Adam's sin was the sin of the human race. So that when He, the first man, the first Adam, sinned, somehow Adam's sin was mysteriously the sin of all of us. Mysteriously, from God's perspective, imputed every human being except one thereafter. I think that is exactly what Paul means by the reason sin entered the world and death spread to everyone is because all sin. It is because we have all sinned in Adam's sin. Not that sin in 1963 for Joe. Adam's sin and the guilt And thus, the judgment was all imputed to us. In some mysterious way, because of Adam's sin, got to get this, imputation is prior to the reality. Because here's the judgment. The imputation of sin logically comes before the judgment of sin. And the judgment of sin is death. It is spiritual death. And it is physical death. Because of sin. See, remember when Paul writes in Ephesians, we are all by our very nature 
children of God's wrath. Something that's prior to that, the imputation of Adam's sin. The reason I think this is precisely what Paul means, if you noticed in verse 12, he catches himself and he stops. Now, at least the ESV has a good translation by putting a dash there. Because all of a sudden, he broke off his thought. When he said, because all sinned, I think what's going on in Paul's mind, he realizes, i got to make sure they do not misconstrue what I mean by because all sin by thinking, oh, it's because every human being sins, which is true. He says, duh, that's, but that's not what I'm saying here. And so he stops himself to clarify exactly what he means. Because the flow should have gone clearly like this, very simply. Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, so also Christ brought righteousness into the world and life through righteousness, and therefore life spread to all who are in Christ. That would have been the flow. But he doesn't do that. He stops and breaks off to make it clear. The whole comparison, according to Paul, in other words, would be totally misconstrued. And we would, if we don't get what he means by we have all sinned in Adam, by imputation, Paul is he's saying this, they're going to miss the glorious beauty of justification by faith alone, apart from anything they do. They're going to not properly understand the reality of their salvation and they won't glorify God in it appropriately. What I mean is this. See, if Paul meant... The reason sin came, okay, entered the world, Adam brought it in, okay, now it's here and now death spreads to all men. You know why? Because we're all infected by sin, which is true. But if he just meant we're infected by sin and then we sin and thus now because of that particular sin and 10 million of them... After that is the reason that I'm going to die and experience judgment. He says, death spread to all people because they all individually sinned, if that's what Paul meant. Well, then when he goes to so also Christ, it would mean something like so also Christ came into the world and he brought righteousness and he brought life. And that righteousness and that life spread to all men because all have individually done acts of righteousness. Follow me? Let me say it again. Anyway, I'm going to be redundant. Just as Adam came into the world, he sinned. Sin therefore entered. Death through sin. And that death spread to everybody because every single person individually sinned. So also Christ came and He did bring righteousness. And He brought grace and He brought all this great stuff. He brought eternal life. You know what? That eternal life is given to people. You know why? Because those particular people it's given to have individually done acts of righteousness. And that's not the gospel. That is the teaching of the Roman church. It's the teaching of the denomination that I grew up in. It's the teaching of many within a Protestant evangelicalism today. Some very clearly, others just the implications of what they do. But it's not the gospel. If we think that, 
what that would mean is that justification comes ultimately because, not without, of course, Rome and the evangelicals who may teach it today, no one assumes that anyone can do acts of righteousness apart from the work of the Holy Spirit and apart from the grace of God, and it would never come if Jesus never came into the world and brought the righteousness. Yes, He did, but where's your salvation resting? Where's your justification resting? It's ultimately resting, they would say, in the fruit of the Spirit, in your acts of righteousness. And the gospel's saying, no, it doesn't rest in you. It rests in that one man, Jesus Christ. Paul's flow here in Romans 5 is like this. Just as through one man sin and death entered the world and death spread to all men, to everybody, because all sinned in Adam. In other words, that his sin was, from God's perspective, imputed to them. Just as that's true, so also, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Righteousness entered the world and life, eternal life, came through that righteousness and so that life and that righteousness spread to everybody who is in that one man, Christ. Because God imputes it to them. That is what is happening when a person get saved. The basis of our acceptance before God is not anything you do today, tomorrow, or the next day. It isn't. It's not anything you do by the power of the Holy Spirit because you're born again. It rests in the work of Jesus Christ. The parallel between the first Adam and the second Adam that Paul is making is crystal clear. Just as Adam's sin is imputed to us because we were somehow mysteriously in him, get the gospel, so also Jesus' perfect human life is imputed to everyone who is in him. Look down at verse 18 and 19 as he finally now comes to the comparison where he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness, not yours, it's Jesus, one act of righteousness leads to justification. Right standing before God forever and the life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, Adam's, not yours, Adam's, not yours, by his disobedience, the many 
human beings were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the Son of Mary, the many will be made righteous. Believer, this is your life. The judicial, God is just, the judicial just consequences of Adam's sin. Paul doesn't care if you like it. It's true. It's biblical. Just as the judgment, the condemnation, the consequences of Adam's sin is experienced by all humanity. Not on the basis of any sin we committed. Can you buy it? We should buy it. If you've embraced Christ, you should buy it because Christianity is wrapped up in this. Not on the basis of any individual acts of sin that we have done, but because Adam did it. Get it. Buy it. Embrace it. And as soon as we believers will see that, then you'll see the parallel that the judicial consequences of Jesus from Nazareth, His whole life, and there is a judicial consequence in that human life, it is experienced by everybody who is in Him. Based on nothing they have or will ever it's imputed to them so let me say it again slowly Mary the child conceived in you will be called the son of God he will grow we saw when he's 12 years old and we saw this uncanny human intellect at age 12 with this uncanny worshipful prayer life with his father throughout his life. We see him come to the Jordan River and get baptized and God now chooses to do something he doesn't usually do and he speaks audibly where people can hear and people can see the Spirit descend. This is the one I prophesied about. This is my beloved Son. With Him I am well pleased. And then off to the wilderness of temptation. You want to see His entire life unto His last breath on the cross in a microcosm of 40 days? We'll see it next time. There it is. And did He sin? No. And He never did. That's your salvation. That's your righteousness before God. Paul is saying that Jesus' obedience in His entire humanity is the remedy and it is the only remedy for the damage that that other guy, Adam, inflicted upon the human race. 
When you see this, you'll understand more why it's true that all religions in the world, from Islam to Buddhism to Hinduism to Shintoism, all kinds of good works and benevolent works and actually good. I want good works done to me when I need them too. Everything that we human beings do, even in the guise of Christianity, offer nothing to the problem that we all are born into. That God's condemnation hangs over us as sinners, as children of Adam. That's why there is no other salvation from God. There is no other salvation but the second Adam from the fatal that the first Adam inflicted upon the human race. There is only one fundamental, basic problem with every human being, and it's sin. The problem with us human beings and those out there who yet remain outside of Christ is not foundationally our individual sinning for which we in humanity is always continually seeking solutions to better themselves. It's not the problem. Our problem is the connection that we all have with Adam. That's Paul's point here. Look at verse 15. Many died through, not yours, one man's trespass. Verse 16, the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. Verse 17, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Verse 18, one trespass led to condemnation for all people. Verse 19, by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We all sin. And our actual sins are worthy themselves of eternal condemnation. Yes! But we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. And the reason we're sinners because prior, Adam's sin was imputed to us. His sin became ours, and His judgment became our judgment. And there's only one Savior. Only one who can undo it. And it's the second Adam. 
who in Luke, as we're going through now, we're going to see a very short synopsis of his life. And it's going to start out now with him going out and being tempted as a human being by the devil. And he will conquer. There's only one Savior from the plight that Adam has plunged the human race into. And that one Savior is the second Adam. Period. In his life and in his obedience even unto death. Jesus undoes what Adam did. In Adam, every person was appointed sinners. Now preach the gospel. In Christ, all who will be in Him are appointed righteous because of His perfect life. And what Paul just did here in Romans 5 was to unpack theologically the meaning of what Luke is telling us historically about the life of Christ. So he puts his genealogy there. This is the one. He is the son of David. The Messiah. He is the son, the seed of Abraham who was to come. Indeed, he is the son of Adam. He is the son of God who has come in order to save us from condemnation forever. What a gospel. What a savior. Here's my application. And it's not a cute joke. Believe it. Love it. Cherish it. Know it. Tell it. Preach it. And defend this one true gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, may you, and it is only grace that this happens to any extent in us, cause the tentacles, the roots of Romans 5 to go deep. May we so embrace what it is to be declared and therefore in your eyes as perfectly, positively righteous as much as Jesus Christ because it is His righteousness that you look at us with. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you didn't stop there, but you dealt with the problem of our guilt by sacrificing your life and receiving willingly the imputation of our sins upon you to be punished in you on the cross and that you have risen forever triumphant for all whom the Father has given you. To the glory of your holy name.